All right, y'all. Today's episode is brought to you by Gray Dog Guitars, located at 141 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Gray Dog Guitars is an authorized tailor, Gretsch, Guild, and Reverend dealer with a friendly, knowledgeable staff and a welcoming environment. Whatever you are looking for, whether to buy, sell, or trade, Gray Dog Guitars has you covered. So stop by today and check out their great selection of new, used, and vintage gear and check them out at www.graydogguitars.com. Welcome to The Creative Convergence, an audible nexus of the creative arts. I'm your host, Candace Devine. Join me in conversation as we discuss the journey creatives take on their path to success. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today we have the insightful and multi-talented Kevin Teasley. Whether as music director, composer, producer, sound designer, or on keys, chances are you have heard Kevin Teasley's work. Between television, film, live concerts, records, and trailers, he is one of Hollywood's most multi-talented and multifaceted creatives in the music industry today. Recently, Kevin's credits include composition, sound design, and programming for Jennifer Lopez's 2020 Super Bowl halftime show. He studied music at Virginia Union University, earning a BA in music under jazz, piano, and composition, and graduating magna cum laude in 1995. He also went through a specialized extensive program at UCLA for film scoring in 2007. Over the past 15 15 years, Kevin has amassed a virtual A-list roster of recording artists and clients, spanning a wide range of eras and styles from J-Lo, Megan Thee Stallion, Chris Brown, Neo, J-Rock, Kendrick Lamar, Ciara, Usher, Tinashe, Kelly Clarkson, Omarion from B2K, Lowrider, Sophia Carson, Black Eyed Peas, Jojo, Erica Jane, Allie Brooke from Fifth Harmony, Catherine McPhee, Icona Pop, Boys to Men, TLC, Tamar Braxton, Keisha Cole, Why Don't We, and The Jacksons, among others. As owner and composer of Tonic Music, and creative, Kevin also spends a considerable amount of time in the studio writing and producing for his Los Angeles-based trailer and TV production music company. He has scored and written additional music for films including The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1, the film Notorious about the life of legendary rapper Notorious B.I.G., Let the Church Say Amen by producer Queen Latifah and director Regina King, The Amber Rose starred Sister Code, Stage Black, College Hill, Lil' Kim Countdown to Lockdown, and DMX Soul of a Man. Some of Kevin's live concert and TV special credits include Empire and Star on Fox, produced by Lee Daniels, the Jennifer Lopez headlined DirecTV Super Saturday Night Concert for the Super Bowl Weekend 2018, Disney's Magical Christmas Celebration on ABC, Common's NBA All-Star Game Performance, Taraji P. Henson's White Hot Holidays TV special on Fox, and Jennifer Lopez's It's My Party 2019 World Tour. If you'd like to learn more about the incredible Kevin Teasley, please see our show notes for his social media accounts and website link. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. And I am so excited to introduce today's guest because he is just, well, he's just freaking fabulous. And and on top of being fabulous as a human, he's an incredibly and extraordinarily talented person on top, both in a artistic career endeavor, but also as a musician. And you have a, a monster set of ears on you, Mr. Kevin Teasley. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I want you to know that the... Uh, the respect respect is mutual and the feelings are reciprocated. And I feel the exact same about you. So that's why it was so great 
for you to uh, ask me to participate on your show. Oh, I'm so excited. Let's start at the very, very beginnings, if you don't mind. Yeah. Where were yeah. you born? Tell me about your early yeah. family life, your parents, siblings. Yeah, anything. yeah. Yes, I was born on an army base in Virginia. It's called Fort Lee, Virginia. And uh, Fort Lee is about maybe 30 minutes south of Richmond, Virginia. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so, um, but I grew up in a little town called Hopewell, Virginia, which is about, you know, 25 minutes south of Richmond, Virginia. And I was raised by my grandmother, who's African-American. Um, I'm half African-American and half white and Spanish. Um, so uh, I was raised by her. I don't know much about my father. Um, he was not present, but I had a wonderful family life and a, a wonderful uh, childhood. We had a, a great family. Um, the good thing about growing up in a grandmother's home, everyone is always there. Yeah. So there's always music and stories and all the aunts and uncles coming over with kids and everything. So uh, it was always fun stuff. And uh, that big family unit was always a good thing to Did have. Did you have any siblings or were you an only child? Yes, I have an older half-sister. Okay. Um, and uh, her name is Shannon. We share the last name. I have, I have her father's last name. And her father's a wonderful man. He would come over and hang out with me as well. And she has three Half brothers by her father, so we have a a pretty interesting extended you have family. A blended family, yes, yeah, yes, and and you know, um, it was wonderful because there, even though there was half brothers and half sisters, we really just call each other brothers and sisters. Even yeah. though her brothers, her three brothers, aren't blood relatives of mine, we still call each other brother and things like that. So we had a wonderful extended family and a wonderful. Um, uh, great Christmases, of course, because yeah. you got gifts from so many people. Um, so <laughs> you're, you're like, we're into it. <laughs> we're like, where Keep is everybody? Where Keep are my bros? <laughs> bring my sisters. Bring them right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I grew up in my grandmother's home, um, who was an amazing woman. Just uh, uh, her name was Fanny Frances Washington. Oh my gosh, what a and, fabulous name! First of all, yeah, no, she now, has such she a southern your father's mother or your mother's mother. She was my mother's mother. mother. She's okay. my mother. Yeah, and she passed away. I, I believe she was 83 when she passed away. And when she passed away is right uh, when I decided to move to L.A. When she passed away at 83, um, I moved to L.A., I think 2000, 2001. So I'm at that 19, 20 years of being in L.A. Yeah. But once she passed away is when I moved to L.A. Um, well, let's backtrack a little bit, though. So yeah. you're, you're growing up in your grandmother's house. Was your grandmother musically inclined? Because you play piano. So yes. was this something that started she, from a um, young age? She, um, she wasn't musically inclined, but she, the story that you hear a lot, she was very active in the, the African-American Baptist Church where, where I grew up. Um, so we were... Very musical. Uh, yeah, very, quote unquote, forced to go to Sunday school. <laughs> and, and, you know, the typical, you're going to get up on Sunday and go to, we would walk to Sunday school. We were in the children's choir. Um, but she was very active in church. She was a um, an usher at our church. Okay. So, and like most families, um, especially in the African-American community, a lot of that early music uh, introduction comes from the church environment. Totally. It's a very musical you know, environment absolutely. In, in worship and everything else. Yeah. So. And it wasn't like the, the gospel music that we hear today. It was very traditional hymnal based 
Oh um, wow! So more of that like yeah. traditional open hymn. It wasn't age, like the Kirk holy, Franklin holy, type holy. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was you know holy like you just said. Yeah. It was very traditional hymn based music. So um, we were in the children's choir and we would do all the Christmas specials and <laughs> and I think the children's choir sung once a Sunday. So my sister and my cousins and I we were all a part of in in the in the church choir, um, and I just had a natural um, affinity. For, for music, I couldn't sing, um, but, you know, it was still cute because everyone was like, oh, the kids are up there singing, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure it was all pretty bad. Um, but, yeah, and that was my early introduction to it, but as as well, a very important person who's also passed away, my grandmother was um, a, what we call a cafeteria lady and a janitor at, at, at my uh, elementary school. And I went to the elementary school and my first musical introduction came from a, a, a gentleman named Samuel Bennett. And he was another janitor at the school and he was a self-taught musician and he would play guitar and he played a, some piano. And this is a true story. I, after school, I would just go play while my grandmother was cleaning. You know, she would have to clean the classrooms yeah. and the, cafeteria and stuff everyone tells me that for hours i would just sit at the piano in the cafetorium because it was a cafeteria and a auditorium all in <laughs> they were like we're, they call we're, we're just doing a, a cross blood, I all blood together. Yeah. And i would literally just sit at that piano for hours and um they would always say, everyone knows where kevin is he's and this was like early age this was, was like six say, sounds seven. like you were probably little still I was very little, five, six, seven years old. And luckily I went to the elementary school where she was the janitor at or custodian, whatever the proper term is. And after school, I would just stay, you know, of course I would go out into the playground and play yeah. some and swing. But a lot of that time was sitting there at the piano. And um, that's where I met Sam Bennett, a, a fellow uh, custodian. And I, I have such fond memories of her fussing at both me and him because she would tell him, <laughs> Bennett, get back to work. You need to go work. You know, now it's not playing. jam time with my grandson. Like, ex- ex- <laughs> you sound like her. That's why she was, you go work, you jam later. And and him and I, he was such a, a, a really nice dude, uh, guy. And he taught me just basic you know, triads and things like that. And he would teach me basic little things. Um, and I just had this natural affinity for it. But at that point, of course, I still didn't know how to read music right. or anything like that. Um, and I remember uh, Sam Bennett telling me that even at an early age, I was really good at picking out notes that once I kind of knew where things you were, pick out ear, notes. Yeah, like ear. where the notes were. And I was always making up little songs and they would always come into the cafeteria, other teachers, and they would kind of giggle because I'd be over there in the corner making up little songs. And it's oddly enough, the way the universe works, my son is kind of the same way. Oh, I love it. When we're in the car driving, he will just kind of make up little songs and things like I that. I love it. Isn't it so, miraculous to see that little face look back at you and see the traits that come through? Oh my God. It really does choke me up because you just go, wow, he's back there. Like I might say something like, you know, you know, we're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Right. And he'll take that line, going to Chuck E. Cheese. 
going to Chuck E. Cheese with my daddy. Yeah. Like he'll make up little songs. And that's kind of how I was. Yeah. I love it. So, it's so funny just to just interject for a second with, sure. with my husband. He's tone deaf and <laughs> we're both in music. So, I mean, it's, he is, I love him dearly for all the other things he does well, sure. but he is tone deaf. So sure. I, uh, when I was pregnant, I was like, this is a 50, 50 man. Like <laughs> the kid's either coming out tone deaf or he's getting some right. sort of an ear. And same right. thing, much like you, when he started singing in the back seat and he could pick up on what he'd heard and kind Absolutely. of keep it or carry it. I was like, Oh, there's a God. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. He, did, he didn't give me two tone deaf people in my uh, family. Two tone deaf people in your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, and and I look back on those years, and you know, you sometimes you don't realize how beautiful those times were. You it's know, simple, um, right? Yeah, it, we don't yeah, realize how simple years, it was. A hundred percent. I'm 49 years old, and so this was the time. Of course, there was no internet. There was no cell yeah. phones. There was no YouTube. So. It was so beautiful just the, the person taking time to share some music with you. And you you kind of had to have your imagination because there was nothing to be your imagination for you. Like, right. you know, like now you have the YouTube and the Instagram to be your imagination your if you're a young for person. You, yeah. Right. Then you had to entertain yourself. And so create it yourself, it, which is oh my gosh, know, and create so it. Important. There was no there was no Pro Tools, you know, there was yeah. no, I think the first keyboard I had was a, you know, little small Casio and it just blew our minds, you know, like, wow, there's a keyboard, you yeah. know, so before then it was just piano and organs and stuff. So then so walk that's, me to a little bit mm-hmm. older. So you get into, let's say yeah. middle school, closer to junior high, were you participating yeah. in school band or school choir? Yes. Right. Interesting enough, I didn't um, participate in my church because um our church had a really nice lady um miss martin who was um ended up being my high school guidance counselor (laughs) also went to our church but then back then the church was uh our church anyway was very traditional it was organ and piano there was no band or anything like that so maybe even the young person in me also saw that that I was not in line anytime soon because it was, <laughs> you know, Y'all, I'm, not, be, I'm not stepping into that duo. I'm right not there. stepping in these shoes. <laughs> and, and so about the, again, the, the more traditional route, I think it was either fourth or fifth grade is when they started coming around about, you know, school band and things like yeah. that. And when I was growing up there, the piano wasn't an option. So it had to be like wind ensemble, you know, in my high school, uh, in middle school, there was, there wasn't even strings, but I grew up in a small town, right? you know, like I think at the time it might've been 25,000 people in the whole town. Yeah. Um, typical blue collar town. I grew up in a lot of industry and plants is what we call them. Um, and so I, I chose saxophone. Um, Interesting. See, I love this. I always learn things that I know I don't know, and this is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so how did that go? I I ended up being, you know, really, really good at it. I would always be f- first or second chair um, at, at at the alto saxophone chair. It was always me and uh, another young lady. Her name was Kim Kim Kimberly Bennett. And a, a, a childhood friend of mine in the, in the other neighborhood named Alvin Flowers, we would always be battling for first chair saxophone. <laughs> so it was always one of them being first 
and me second or me being first and one of them being right, second. Right. So, uh, so, and, but what I ended up, um, finding out is that I wanted to always do more than one note at one time. And that's why I always gravitated towards piano. Ah, you know, yeah. Yes. You and, had a harmonic my, mind. Yeah, I had this harmonic sense. Yeah. I always was, I remember being in band class and my first, uh, band teacher ever in life. I had two. Um, one was named Mr. Furbush. Um, and the other one was named, uh, Mr. Utt, U-T-T. And I used to always kind of come after class and look at, I always was mesmerized, but how did they know what we were all supposed to be playing? Right. And I always was going, well, how do you know when to point to us? How do you know when to point to the flutes? So I would go up to the conductor stand and I would look at the music and I would be like, just terrified. I was like, how are you crossing your eyes? Because it's to overwhelming. See all of this, it is right, yeah. And then I would see a piano reduction at the bottom, and I was still going. How is he understanding more than one note at one time? That's and such a good question because I, <laughs> yeah. I don't think most people think of it in those terms. Like when you think right. of somebody educating children in instruments or even conducting an orchestra or band, right. you're not thinking of it in terms of being one body looking at every person's plan. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it would blow me away. Like I just thought he memorized it. Like, you know, being a young kid, yeah. however old you are at fourth or fifth grade, I just was mesmerized at how does he know when the trumpet's supposed to play in the note and how does he, and, you know, and, and, it might be a little different now, but back then with the traditional music learning, you know, in colleges back then, there really wasn't music technology or recording right. you would study. You would take the traditional academic route. Yeah. And I was like, how does he know how to play every instrument? I just thought that they were like unicorns. I was like, they could play every instrument. They knew this the notes of every instrument. No, I was like, I was <laughs> totally. just like, I was blown away. And I just kept saying, I want to do that. Like, I, I, I want to understand that. Um, but I played saxophone all the way through high school, marching band, the band camp in the summers. Oh, like heating. you did it. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I have such beautiful that. memories of high yeah. school. The August burning, sweltering heat in the <laughs> South at band camp. I did that. But I ended up playing snare drum. And then in, in my marching band, I hated the marching part because my knees would lock. <laughs> but what they would do is they would have some percussive instruments on the sideline and I ended up playing xylophone. Wow. Because I started piecing it together like, okay, more than one note at no, a time. Right. Oh, I, I'm starting to get this treble clef and bass clef and the notes are different and all this sorts of thing. I never took um, uh, a formal piano lesson. You'll never believe this. Until I got to college. Wow. I never, I, now, when, when, I... It begs the question, though, so I do have to ask. Yes. During all of this time, as you know, through your, for, through your formative schooling in your younger years and into your junior high and high school, did you know you were building a repertoire for what would be... Like, did you have your sights on that, knowing that yes. those band directors kind of were awe-inspiring? Or was this yes, just like, yes. I'm going to try everything? Yes, I kind of... Um, it's kind of maybe threefold. I was one of those early kids that knew I only want to do music. I knew from a very early age, I mean, super early, yeah. that um, when I was younger, 
it was you wanted to make records, you wanted to be a star and things like that. The thing that's tangible, you can was. see that. You're like, right. I know that I that saw person. people on TV yeah. and like, yeah, I want to be, you know, this person, you know. Right. Um, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they they make the music like, oh, I didn't even know what a producer was, you know, like, yeah. but you kind of knew that they played instruments and Prince was one of my early influences, but I didn't know. Um, but I always had, um, like, I always had this awe of writing music for the bands and the orchestras. Like, even though we didn't have an orchestra, I was always in awe of making stuff up. And when we were younger, me and my cousin named Mike Washington, he ended up going the hip hop route and still does professor music in Philadelphia. How odd that is. Yeah. Well, uh, beautifully odd that is how we both went different routes. We had what my uncle called the bedroom band. <laughs> and, and God bless my uncle. I'm sure we were horrible. And <laughs> every Saturday he would let us go into my cousin's bedroom. And he was really into the early drum machines that would come out, the 808s and the 909s. He had them all. And I had early moods and stuff like that. And that's how I kind of learned to program patches. And he would let, his, my uncle uh, is an amazing man, Joy. Uh, oddly enough, my family's last name is Washington. I used to always tease my grandmother, why did she name her son George? I was like, you have an <laughs> African-American son named George Washington. Like, yeah, your grandmother, did you, you didn't that? think that one through. <laughs> right, so you didn't think that one through real, real good. Or maybe you did. I don't maybe, know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm just not hip to your game. Um, but he would let us play. And I know we drove him crazy, but he would just rather, um, we didn't grow up in the hood hood, but my grandmother's, my grandmother's house was one street over from the projects. And my cousin's house was, uh, not in the projects, but it was still not the suburbs, you know? Yeah. Um, so their main thing was keeping their children off the corners, you know, doing, selling drugs and up Absolutely. to no good. And, and this was, I was born in 71. So my young teen years was the eighties is when the crack epidemic was hitting America right. and really hard, the, the black community. So the main thing was, Hey, they can drive us crazy all day with this hard. As long music. as they're inside safe. Inside the house, right. Yeah. So um that really was a good developmental period. And then we started putting together bands and we didn't really know how to put together a band. <laughs> you know, we just said, Hey man, you play drums, come cool. on over. And I'm sure right. Hey, you play bass, come on over. And cool. it was probably horrible. No, no one's playing in the same key. No one knows the structure of songs. The drummer's getting fast and slow. The I'm bass player's you, it playing. Was, you know, it was like, some other hey, I'm playing this. You're going to play with it. There was no structure. <laughs> but, you know, that was the time to be horrible and, and to fail and to and just not know the rules. I you know? hope more kids are doing that still. Me because too. Because with all Me of too. the um, program, with all the technological capabilities, I think yes. that you can get it so perfect so quickly in a computer that you lose a good section of learning by failure. You know absolutely. what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's a whole nother masterclass that I do when I, when I, talk to college students and it's we, we we get into that of you know um back when i was young and in in a lot of us um it was you know you had to be good first it was no let's fix it in post later right if you listen to i'm not the old guy saying get off my lawn back in the olden <laughs> days but if you listen to the prince michael jackson's steely dan eagles i mean you name the genres all the, people were all singing the legends. He, 
the Beatles. It was in key. They only had eight tracks. So oh all my the creativity- gosh, when you look at this, the episode or the the footage, sorry, not the episode, the footage of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And I got it. Please send me that link. Well, but the thing is, is they've been on record with interview. They, they couldn't hear a thing because the screaming was so loud, so loud, but because they were so well practiced. And because Absolutely. they had been just, you know, doing their thing time I and time remember again. listening to like Earth, Wind and Fire yes. and being like blown away. I was like, how are they so in tune? And then when, you know, as a little kid, then we would do it and go, it doesn't sound oh like that, you know, but now everything's fixed it in the box. And, you know, if our conversation goes there, we can. I'm, I never want to be, you know, the, the old guy just saying, you know, at one point, you know, there was jazz and then when rock and roll came along it was anti-music and then right. now we look at it so you know so nostalgically then it was early hip-hop which was anti-music right now we look at it so oh hip-hop today isn't like hip-hop of old so you know, i do understand each generation has something to offer but when we were growing up we didn't have that we had real profits and moves and right. things trying to program it and we um I, we didn't have recall sheets or phones to take pictures yeah. we would just have to take a little scribble piece of paper and draw our own, make our own recall. She's trying to remember the sound and stuff like that. Remember the bass sound? Um, so that was all the way through high school. And um, it was marching band, concert band, concert choir and things. But oddly enough, nothing was ever on um, piano until the 11th grade, I got into show choir. <laughs> it was... I was, in, I was a freshman in high school in 1985. So 1987, we were in our version of the TV show Glee. Like we had <laughs> show choir. Yeah. And we were, so we would go to Disney World and do the show choir competition oh, and everything. This. Yes. And I had a, our show choir teacher, her name was Miss, uh, she, she since passed away, Miss Ann Taylor. And she was classically trained, amazing. And I was always just blown away of, up until that point, outside of band playing saxophone one note at a time, I was blown away how she could see a sheet, a, a sheet of music that she never saw before and play it almost correctly. You know, yeah. of course, she's still sight reading. It may not be at tempo, but she would, st- I was like, how is she doing this? I got news for you. I still feel that way about people that are that. <laughs> No, for like, sure. You know, when I see a great musician sit down and get at something they've never looked right. at before and they basically nail it for the most part. I mean, I would go I would go to the record stores back then when they were record stores and I could go get a buy a legitimate sheet music of Purple Rain and I would put it in front of her and she wasn't a pop person, you know, she didn't yeah. listen to Prince. She was classically trained, you know, academic and I'm sure she heard the song on the radio maybe, but she would play it and I was like how are and you then you're like, like purple rain. Right. I'm just like, amazing. <laughs> you're wailing. And then she would play it. And then I would come back to class the next day and had it memorized. And she used to always say to me, Kevin, if you were to study music, um, you would be a really good musician because you have the creativity. But then she would fuss at me because she would always say, but you keep adding stuff that's not in the song. And I would be like, well, that's the fun part. She'd be right. like, no, you have to play what's on the page. So then I saw my brain start to split with that dichotomy of, well, I don't, I want to make, I want to, I want to do my version of it. Yeah, you know? I want to create her, around this. But her way is, 
you know, and this was, there is no right or wrong way. Her way was, if it's not on the page, right. you don't play that, um, which later served me once going to school. But Well, I was going to say, um, I think that's an interesting point to marinate on for a second, only because I kind of equate it to cooking. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. follow the recipe first, see what you get. Right. And then decide where and how you're going to improve it. So she's exactly like, right. just learn it the way it's written first and first. become good at that. Right. And then go take it to where you need it to go. Absolutely. And your point is 100% right. I was horrible at that. <laughs> I would, you're like, I that would was go, not in my plan. <laughs> no, I was like, no, I don't want to play it that way. I want to add an intro and I want to add a little break here. and. Right. It started when I'm, even as I'm talking to you now, it started my, before I knew, even knew what these positions were, it started my arranger, orchestrator, music director mind, you know, of, Hey, I want to, I want to do it this way. Isn't it funny Um, to look back at it now and see those inklings and and not even wait a minute. There was that, uh, you know, whatever, you know, it was already brewing. Like I want to do it my way and things like that. So, um, as, as time went, you know, I would play in the pep bands in high school and she would every now and then let me do a quote unquote arrangement for the choir. Um, she would let us do uh, a pop song on the radio. And I wasn't a really, even through high school, by the time I was in high school, I wasn't developmentally where most people who are professional pianists or keyboard players would be at that point. Um, because I never well, took I a say, lesson. You had no training. I mean, formal I had training. no training. Yeah. On, on the piano. So I I had I was getting the high school, middle school theoretical understanding of music, but not the digital learning of five fingers on a piano learning. Right. I had my own ways. I'm sure my fingers looked like pretzels and she would always <laughs> fuss at me saying I was fingering stuff wrong. And I was like, what do you mean I'm fingering stuff wrong? <laughs> like I'm hitting the notes. It's coming out. If you and can I would, hear it, I'm doing it at least I'm mostly doing it right. Right. <laughs> right. So she would just, you know, and so I just started like, uh, I think I found Jamie, uh, discovered Jamie Ambersaw back in those days when it was still on CD and they would bring it to you. So I would order those and it was a, Above my thinking at that time. I was like, this is way too hard. This is jazz stuff. Yeah. I, he's what is he playing? You know, the piano stuff, the what are these chords? I didn't even understand it. So I kind of abandoned that. Um, so believe it or not, my first after high school, um, all of my music was just like, I guess you could say, again, this is not a a, a diss of a term, but it was like garage band experience, yeah. you know, like after high school, I ended up getting in a top 40 band enough to play, you know, easy pop songs of that day of the eighties. I, you know, we would play Hall of Notes and, yeah. and, and that's not a diss to Hall of Notes stuff that was in, within no, my but, grasp. But something that know. was top 40, yeah, that we could was play, kind of probably straightforward. Yep. You know, I, I remember playing, uh, like I couldn't play anything like Thriller back then because it was the, the, the bridge on Thriller was like, too heavy for me, but I yeah. could do, you know, like again, uh, Olivia Newton John stuff, and, right? You know, yeah, just you know, good straight pop, pop of the day, song, you know. Yeah. So now, um, at this point, were you? Did you have your sights on college? Did your grandmother go? You will go to college, yes? Or were um, you like, I'm going to go be a professional musician? I, I wanted to go to college, <laughs> yeah, and and um, I wanted to study music, and I remember a point of contention in, in our household. Um, when I think, I don't know when Musicians Institute started, 
Um, but I remember finding Musicians Institute somehow. And this was 1989. It might have been in Keyboard Magazine or something like yeah. that. And I was like, I want to study music, you know. And I remember um, my, my mother uh, talking to my sister's father, who I share his last name, Teasley, saying, talk him out of it. Like, you know, him, Kevin in L.A., he's, you know, I graduated high school at 17, so I was still kind of immature and young. So me in L.A. at 17 probably wasn't a good idea, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Isn't I, it I funny just, how grown you feel when you're the one that's the oldest you've ever been, but now, especially, like, having a kiddo, you're like, you look you're, back a and go, nah, you're a child. You're a child. Right. I would have been, you know, um, m- maturity-wise, I wasn't ready, and musically, um, I wasn't ready. Um, so I ended up, st- I ended up um, going to VCU first. Um, I was very good um, in architectural drawing uh, in high school. I was very good at, you know, drawing. Uh, we had a mechanical drawing class and I was extremely good at it. And I remember um, all the, uh, the high school counselors and everything trying to push me into architectural studies because I don't, I don't fault them for that. This was 1989. Um, when, if you weren't going to be a music teacher, then music wasn't a career. They just thought there's Kevin with the stars in his eyes Uh and his head in the clouds. One, and forgive me for interrupting you. No, no, that exact thought, it was the catalyst of this podcast because Hmm. we were talking about how everybody's very clear on the zero to a hundred. It's like, there's no music career. And then there's, the people you work with, there's the JLo, there's the Beyonce, there's the... Absolutely. But the whole range of what's in between is never really discussed in a career facet. Like people right. don't tell you, sit you down and go, oh, you love music? Hey, here's all these jobs that come within the umbrella of music. Going to the elevator, and, and I'm sure you'll teach your, your child the same thing, is that I always, my grandmother never taught me what to think. She always said, I want to teach you how to think. And so I was always at a very early age, a critical thinker. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like I could de- de- deconstruct things and really look at it. And I remember telling my guidance counselors, I was like, well, when I go to the theme park that was near us was, um, there was one that was called Bush Gardens that was down like near Virginia Beach. And then one near Richmond was called King's Dominion, which was all the Paramount character scooby-doo and all them and i remember saying i go to king's dominion with my uncle bill who was uncle george washington we called him <laughs> uncle bill and, and uh, i was like i see people playing in the shows and i see people you know walking around playing instruments i go into an elevator i hear music i see commercials i hear music so i remember being very i don't want to use the word rebellious but i would remember pleading my case going I can do this if I don't do that. If I don't become a star, there's yeah. all this other sort of stuff. Well, you saw the awareness. So, you were like, there are I, other ways to make a living that still make me happy. I, and I, and still to this day, and I'm sure we'll, we might get this at some point in the conversation if we start talking about defining success, is that I knew that not only did I not want to do anything else, and I'm saying this with humble, with a humble nature, I can't do anything else. Right. I mean, I... I don't know how to do accounting or, you know, carpentry It's like, I have to make this work. Yeah. So I always make up. This is the thing that makes me tick. There is no plan B. So I had to to make it work. I'm not saying that I suggest that for other people. I just know that that was my, my path, um, that I had to make it work. So VCU at the time, um, had hired, um, uh, 
uh, Ellis Marcellus was the jazz piano teacher and Branford and Winton and all those guys would come down. And I remember when I didn't, they wouldn't let me apply to Musicians Institute, um, which at that time in the country, even before Berkeley was one of the few schools that were starting to integrate technology into yeah. it. Cause I was always into recording studios. My buddy had a recording studio when I was growing up and they would, I didn't get accepted as a, uh, music major. I wasn't ready. I didn't go the route as studying with a teacher. When they sent the audition materials, I was like, WTF? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What am I supposed to do with this? What do you mean audition? Was this for me? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you want me to, to show right address? <laughs> Is this for me? Um, and I remember just going like, wow. So I, I, you know, sometimes you need those, um, that, that humble kick in the butt sometimes, um, because I was, there were, I was the multi-talented guy in high school. You know, I was the guy that could make music, you know? And so, you know, you kind of go like, Oh, I'm ready for the world, so to speak. You know, everyone here is telling me I can make it. And, you know, and then you get that and you go, wow. And I remember being so sad about it. And one of the guys that, that I call my big brother till still to this day, Carlton Blunt, he was a, he's a legendary singer back in our city. And he would say, well, let me tell you something, young blood. He would say, I'm going to tell you something. If you look at the NBA, there's five guys on the floor. The 12th guy on the bench was number one at his college. Yeah. Go to his college, go through all that bench. The 12th guy on that college bench was number one at his high school. Go to that high school, the 12th guy on that bench was number one in his neighborhood on his block. So he's saying, so he was telling me, do you want to be the number one guy on your block? Are you trying to be the number one guy in the world or be in that number? Um, And that stuck with me still to this day. I kept saying, okay, I could kind of like, you know, pout and say, I'm going to stay here in Richmond scene, Hopewell scene and be the guy. Or I would rather try to make it to be in that number. I, yeah. I would rather be the 12th man on an NBA team right. than mm. the number one guy in my neighborhood. Yeah. Um, I love that uh, analogy. Yeah. That and that always stuck with me, you know? Um, and so I just said, you know, I went to BCU started as a general studies major because I couldn't make the music program. And I remember taking some piano lessons and uh, it, they, they were harsh. It, it was tough. This was in the, this was in the, Late 80s, 89, 90, 90, 91, when it was the the um the new vanguard of the the young lions jazz movement of the whole Marcellus family, you know, Eric Reed, like that whole new uh, Marcus Roberts, like yeah. all those guys, and they, they were coming from that tree, and it was hardcore and it was not nice. I remember one of my <laughs> No one older, was looking out for your feelings? <laughs> no, it, it, it was cutthroat. It was yeah. cutthroat. I remember one of, uh, he was older than me and he probably doesn't even remember me. Um, uh, we had a, it was an amazing program at the time. James Genus, who's now the basis for uh, SNL, um, but plays with tons of people, but that's the most popular one where people will see him. Uh, he was one of the elder classmates, Clarence Penn, that went on to play with tons of you know jazz greats nate smith who's going on to be one of the best jazz drummers in the world so it was high competition era. And yeah yeah and i remember going to my first piano lesson <laughs> and, 
And, yeah. and hey, can, I, can I play you some Olivia Newton-John? Exactly <laughs> right. You must have been there. And I remember Russell Wilson, who was like, this was the old, he studied from Dr. Billy Taylor. Like, these were like, you Cats. know, who came, who come from, who came from, <laughs> Marion Williams and all that, like they came from that old school. You need to be able to play. And he, the cats, like (laughs) for real, for real. And he put some sheet music in front of me one day. And I remember trying to sight read it. And I literally was henpecking it. And he said to me, maybe this will help you out. And he turned it upside down. (laughs) And And to this day, him and I are in a in a student mentor, even though I'm 50 and he's probably in his 70s now, um, mentor student relationship. Uh, I have the we're such good friends and love, and we laugh at that story. But at the time, I hated him. <laughs> I was like, "What kind of what kind of nurturing thing is this?" I, was, I didn't understand. Yeah. So you know, so from that, we we took a few lessons, and he started to break things down and teach me the blues form and. Again, I came from a very small southern country town, so there were no jazz bands. Right. You know, I think the most I had ever heard, the jazziest thing I heard growing up was Earth, Wind & Fire. If you think about the harmonic stuff they would do and the Quincy Jones stuff with Michael Jackson and stuff, those that's the most... Right, but that's still harmony. that's still not like the deep, the deep pockets deep jazz of jazz stuff. Like, oh no. my God, so I was like... Wow. So I went to VCU for two years and I took those two years and anyone that remembers me or knows me and knows me from that time, you probably never saw me. I was literally in the woodshed. I'm not joking. 16 hours a day. Yeah. Because I was filled with, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you. Right. That fire. Yeah. And then. And then after that two years, I remember Ellis and Branford and them leaving the school after only being there. I think they were there for a couple years before I applied. So whatever their tenure was, whether it was a six-year tenure or something like that, I came at the last end. And that's why everyone went there to study from the Marcelluses, you know, that sort of thing. They were the draw. Um, That was the draw. But I think if I remember correctly, um, of course, with many performing faculty, they were touring a lot. So there was a lot of times when they just weren't there. So part of the draw of going there to study with them, um, the beautiful thing was they were the Marcelluses and they were touring all the time and you got all that wisdom. The drawback was they were touring all the time. time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so you never really got, you know, but I never got... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I I have to ask because you brought up a really important point. You were like, you know, during that time, I'm in in there 16 hours a day, just working it out. Did you ever, did you find yourself saying with that particular instrument, once you're finally at the piano and learning, were you going, ah, like, was it kind of a breath of fresh air, even though it was stressful and you were working hard? Or did you kind of ever second guess yourself? Like, maybe I do need to go back to the saxophone. (laughs) Right. And and, and I'm saying this, and I'm sure as a a creative person, you'll get what I'm saying. There isn't a day that I still don't second guess myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yeah. And and, and I think that second guessing is healthy because it means you're not satisfied. The depression part is the unhealthy part. <laughs> the part when you cry but, yourself to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But 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 the second guessing meaning like you you still care. 
Right. You, know, you haven't become um, complacent and you haven't right. gotten and, jaded. And you haven't thanked that you've arrived, that you go, that I, I don't need to learn anything. Yeah. You know, um, but there was a six month period where I was like, maybe, yeah, maybe the counselors at high school were right. Yeah. You know, um, and that, and, and at that time I did end up getting into another pop band you know, and we would do the, in Richmond, Virginia, there's a popular college bar strip called Shaco Bottom. Anyone who had ever been to Richmond and there's nothing but bars, typical college town. Right. And at that time, you know, it was all live bands. One or two places might've had DJs, but it was all live bands. So Richmond being a college town, there was always some sort of gig to, to do. So I ended up getting into a pop band and it helped me. My ears were expanding, but the first six months I was like, okay, I'm doing this for 16 hours a day. I've heard this goofy 10,000 hours rule and I'm looking at my, my <laughs> abacus and I'm approaching six, 10,000 hours there. and I don't see it. <laughs> and, I, and I do remember, I don't remember what I was playing, but I think every musician or every creative, whether you're an actor, has this one moment when you remember that the light bulb kind of went off. Like the veil kind of got lifted up. Yeah. And I remember one day leaving the practice room going, it's it kind of went off. And I remember having, I'm I'm being serious, like the movie Limitless. I remember <laughs> having, after that six months, I remember having two years of just enormous growth. And I think all of that was hanging around the jazz musician students at uh, at VCU, which st stands for Virginia Commonwealth University, leaving my little town, going to Richmond, going to hear music every night. Right. Having the more exposure. Just, I think my ear just, yeah. And then the, like, the light bulb started going off. I was like, oh, the blues form. I get it now. Oh, <laughs> oh. you know, like I'm getting it. Oh, okay. I'm getting these sets of changes. Oh, oh. Oh, I'm kind of getting it. I'm, I'm, oh, okay. So it, there was a two year period where I remember seriously, like taking the drug limitless, the, my, it just, I just had this tremendous growth. So there was another college in town called Virginia Union University. And that's a, uh, what we call an HBCU, historically black college and university. And, um, to this day, He's one of the most amazing pianists you would ever want to hear. His name is Dr. Weldon Hill, and he's the jazz piano teacher over there. But he plays classical jazz. When I tell you he plays Strad piano like Fats Waller, he can play all that Oscar, Oscar Peterson. You think you, you're wow. sitting there listening to Oscar Peterson. But he also came from the Dr. Billy Taylor, Russell Wilson school. I, and they gave me a scholarship there. And I will say those four years at Virginia Union developed me as a musician. Yeah. I went yeah. from VCU of being uh, one of 30 piano students, you know, trying to be around to one of six. Um, and I had much more. Wow. You had this concentrated like experience in a vacuum where it was everything Absolutely. was probably right on you. Oh my gosh. We had, um, you know, because it was an HBCU, it was a smaller university. And of course, you didn't have the, the dollars or the, the flash of the, uh, the Marcellus family being there. Um, but you had like these old school teachers that were like there. I learned jazz arranging. I mean, it was almost the two years of being 
for lack of a better word, rejected. I don't want to say rejected, not being ready at VCU. Those two years prepared me for the four years at Virginia Union. The funny story is the way the universe works. When I was at Virginia Union, the big band teacher had contacted my piano teacher saying, hey, we're short on piano students this year. We need a pianist for our big band. So the way the universe worked was I went to Virginia Union, got better, and ended up playing. So I got this. They gave me credit, even though it was at the other college. I got credit for ensemble credit, you know, at Virginia yeah. Union. Um, so That's pretty cool. One, yes, that and, it and lined school, up like that. And two, that they were willing to work together that way. Right. Yeah. And then it was, right. So it was, I was going to school for basically free. And I was playing at the other university, playing in our ensembles, getting the one-on-one attention. Um, and in those four years, not only did I make lifelong friends, those were my most formative years, still at that point of just being a jazz pianist. And I don't want to say just being a jazz pianist, because when you're a jazz pianist and a concert pianist, you you dedicate your life to that. Right. If you want to be one of the best jazz pianists or classical pianists in the world. That's what you're doing all the time. That's what you're doing. Right. And um, what, what, what jazz gave me the ability to always do what I always did when Miss Taylor would fuss at me, <laughs> make up my own, yeah. make up my own stuff. I would just take a song and make up my own thing. So I was really into the arranging stuff. It was like this whole new world of learning how to arrange for a jazz band, learning each instrument. So I really enjoyed um, being in school there. Um, uh, there was another young African-American student named Chris Red was an amazing classical player and um, we were all the same age. i mean amazing could play anything he could read sheet music upside down 10 <laughs> miles away and it would be perfect upside I mean, down and backwards <laughs> i'm telling you no he was and he was just so and you'll get what i'm saying he was just such a beautiful player it was so graceful yeah. and it just looked like he was truly the ex- the piano was an extension of his body. It was, you didn't see a person playing ex- piano. You just felt like it was one entity. He was amazing. And then another young uh, colleague of mine, his name is Ashby Anderson. He was like, the Th- and when we look back and we talk these days, he was like the Thelonious Monk. Yeah. I was the Duke Ellington. Yeah. And Chris Red was like, you know, the Rachmaninoff. He was, I, you know. I feel it, like those are pretty solid comparisons for all Right, because <laughs> I was always into the arranging yeah, yeah, and yeah. orchestration and stuff. So from that, was my big formative years. And I really w- was playing bands, club dates. Literally at one point, I was playing seven days a week, sometimes two times a day. Playing at the jazz brunches, playing on the, what we have in Richmond because it's a big uh, plantation town yeah. um, from that era. There was always plantation cruises. So I would be on the riverboat playing and jazz clubs every night and formals and Sunday brunches and like Gosh, pop can, bands. I get, I was, can I get like even a, a just a drop of the energy that we all had when we were in our 20s and we could like you know what and, and that's true because now it's like 10 o'clock I'm ready to go home <laughs> you, know? you know I want to but I mean Netflix. but that's all part of that period of life too because that you're soaking that in that, everything that part is what I tell to every master class I teach to every college that is the time to screw up mess up and what's most important is, <clears throat> um, I make sure I frame it correctly. I'm not impressed by someone that sounds just like John Coltrane, and that was, and that's always been from my teacher, Dr. Weldon Hill. He was so big because I, I was a Herbie Hancock. I just wanted to be Herbie Hancock. 
Um, but what young piano player at that point, you either wanted to be Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea at that point in time. Yeah. You know, this generation probably wants to be Robert Glasper and Corey Henry right. and people like that. Well, it's but, the people you grow up idolizing. And right. then you just and think, he if was I like, can be like, as good as that, then I'm fine. But right. And, and and there there's a little bit of gratification of, hey, I, I've just transcribed some Herbie and I can do it. But he would always say, you know, like, yeah, why do you want to sound like a second-rate Herbie? You're never going to be as good as... You're not going to play Herbie better than Herbie. So he was like, I'd rather hear Kevin be the first-rate Kevin. So that point in time was my time of developing my own voice, um, which was very important. And that's that important period for anyone in college, anyone uh, in their early 20s or whatever their early developmental period is to develop your voice. That's what's very important. And to make your screw-ups because that's the time to make a screw-up. when you're. 49 like me and the AMAs are coming up. <laughs> there is no room for it. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's just, unacceptable. That's just a, a <laughs> career know? ending right there. <laughs> exactly right. So from from college, I left college and my, my first gig was on Princess Cruise no, not Princess. Norwegian Cruise Lines. I was a jazz pianist on the cruise lines. Well, but you also kind of get to see the world, which is pretty cool. It was nothing against uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines. <laughs> I hated every minute. I was gonna of say it. this isn't gonna go as well. I remember, I remember <laughs> being in a white polyester tails tuxedo on a lily pad in the aft of the boat playing an out of tune piano. Someone drunk coming up in the pool saying, "Play Free Bird." <laughs> I remember going. Yeah, I don't care how I, many countries I get to see. I am not doing this. Trust job. me. <laughs> I was like, I cannot. And, you know, also, too, back to the point that you earlier made, in your 20s is the time to be an ideologue and a purist. I was like, I just graduated from college as a jazz pianist. I'm not going to play. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I think I am? (laughs) And I lasted on that gig maybe six months because it was it was tough, you know. And I was like, man, like, okay. This, 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 this isn't working for me, but it was great to see, okay, that's an option that's out there. Do you want to do that? And I remember coming back home and locking up and getting into a group of friends. And I toured Europe for like two years um, with a, with a group. And um, that was, I got to see the world. Yeah. I was still very extremely young. Might've been, I wasn't even 25 yet. Um, so that was great. And then I went to UVA um, for a year, master's studies in orchestration. Um, and after that, I ended up working at a jingle house in Richmond, Virginia. I, okay, um, so now I have to ask, though, just because, okay, mm-hmm. so you graduate school, you go on a cruise line. That's not our favorite. You're in a band. Mm-hmm. You're touring Europe and seeing the world for a couple of years, which is amazing. It was amazing. Um, which I also think is a really important education for inspiration Absolutely. and for culture and differences and learning Absolutely. sounds. Um, so that's that's incredible. At any point in this section of your evolution, mm-hmm. were you yet thinking about film composition arranging or philharmonic arranging or because yes at this point it was still um and you'll know what i mean the the entertainment industry um 
and I'm saying the term Hollywood in, in, a, in, a, in a good term, not in a, in a, you know, look down term or negative way. I really was unaware of this Hollywood thing. I won't say unaware. Of course, I would watch the Grammys and right. Oscars growing up, but I was really unaware of what a music director was and what a producer was. Like I knew people right, like made titled records and yeah, yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah. I kind of knew Quincy Jones was the producer for Michael Jackson, but I didn't know that that was a path for me at that point. Got I still wanted to do big band arrangements. I wanted to, you know, do arrangements for the. Pop top 40 band and make up Metleys. <laughs> I wanted to tour. And at that point, I really still was really into, like most young people, I still just wanted to play. I just wanted to be in pop bands. And I, I dreamed of, you know, being in a famous person, Madonna's band, for example, and touring the world. Like, wouldn't that be amazing to be the keyboard player in Madonna's band or something like that? Yeah. I didn't know that, like, but it was still just a dream to me. It was like, man, look at this is amazing. And I remember watching Arsenio Hall's show, like, wow, how do these guys get this gig? And how do you do that? And how do you get to be a part of so that? So it was sitting in there somewhere, but you just weren't it was chasing marinating, it. Yeah, it was But marinating. it was still, to me, it was something that was not attainable for me because my brain and my spirit still wasn't thinking Hollywood, L.A. at that point. Right. Um, because after graduate school, I had moved to New York and to chase the jazz musician's dream. And at that point, I was mid-20s, maybe 26, 27. And I only lasted in New York for two years. After two years of living in a shoebox and gigging to four or five o'clock in the morning with jam sessions and walking away with 50 bucks, as you get older, and I say this to every student or every aspiring musician, as you get older, life happens. You start wanting nicer things, or you don't. But if you're a person who starts going, I want a car. Yeah. Oh, I want to not or, eat ramen noodles for the rest of my right. life. I want to pay my rent without I want to pay my, I don't want five roommates anymore. Go right. I, I don't want to be calling my friends, borrowing 20 bucks for gas. Um, and also I saw that I just had too many interests to pursue uh, sitting in a room, practicing jazz piano 20 hours a day till I could play giant steps faster than anyone else. And I'm not saying that as a diss, but that's, that's, well, that's, that's life. That's life catching up with you. Who, again. People who pursue that. Right. Right. And, and that's just not what I wanted to do for me. Um, because before I had moved to New York, I was s- scoring in a jingle house. And my first big gig was uh, a sob commercial. And then I saw the, the payment. I was, I was probably uh, early twenties. In 19, what, early 90s with a $65,000 payday? I was like, <laughs> You're all, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. I did 30 seconds of a, of a, of a commercial of music. And I, and I got paid for it. Yeah. All right. And, and I forgot to mention something in my story is that when I was a freshman, which was a big part of my developmental, which was still starting to um, marinate in my brain at Virginia Union, the HBCU, my Piano teacher uh, recommended me to uh, a black composer named Stu Gardner. He was the composer for the Bill Cosby Show, um, oh, Living wow. Single, A Different World. He was doing fine. <laughs> he was doing fine, yeah. And and he lived right down the street from the university. And uh, again, he 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 didn't read or write music. He would literally play the piano, make cassette tapes. Back then, there was cassette tapes, and it was me and another young guy named Tony Hardy, who went to Virginia State University, which was another HBCU, 
we would kind of transcribe it or we would put the beats to it. And then he started giving us um, a cue here, a song there. And then I started like getting just enamored with it. We, at that time, we were, he, we were doing um, what he was doing, I won't say we, he was doing uh, a different world, which was the spinoff from the Cosby's when they went to college. That's with, right. Uh, yeah. uh, and I started doing music for that. And um, again, a cue here, a cue there. And it was great pay. I was a freshman in college. So I grad- at 20, 21 years old, I was making $1,000 a week. At 2021, 20, at 1989, 1990. That's awesome. So you couldn't tell me <laughs> I was not the big man on campus. Yeah. You know, I could, yeah. you know, buy pizzas. And um, so, You're like, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> that slice is on me. And one day, not being arrogant, he just showed me his BM- BMI check. And I really didn't even know what BMI or ASCAP was back then. And he said, see that number right there? He said, that's just for the theme song for the Cosby show. And the number was six figures. And that was just for the quarter. Yep. Now, I started going, I'm interested in this, not just for the money, but I was like, wow, I can do jazz music one day, classical music one day, hip hop music so one day. feeding that variety music, that you love. That and variety. The, and that the creativity around like, I can make that. up my own stuff. Right. <laughs> you know? So that was early. And I did that with him for like maybe three years through my junior year. Um, but then I went to, you know, th- to New York and um, I really made a really difficult choice. Um, and I and I remember kind of being very emotional and teary out about it with the conversation to myself that just said, Kevin, I'm not going to pursue the jazz pianist route. Um, I just 20 hours a day um, to just play jazz piano when it's so much stuff I want to do um I would be doing myself a disservice and to compete in a in a in a in a in a artistic way to compete and be have something to offer there um it was some killer players yeah. you know and you have I to mean, be I willing re- to give it your all and Jeez. if you know you have this diverse bag of interests you're kind right. of like well Okay, everyone, today's episode was recorded at and brought to you by Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Raven Sound Studio is a professionally equipped audio production facility offering recording, mixing, and mastering services throughout northern Arizona and surrounding areas. Whether you are looking to cut a demo, record your next single, or have a full album produced, Raven Sound Studio has the tools and skills you need to get the job done. For more information, head to www.ravensoundstudio.com to book a session or schedule a tour. You know, so I came back to Virginia um, and I was doing gigs and everything. Now, I have to ask, though, did you get bit by the New York bug? Like as far as the big city life versus the country small towns? Right. Still to this day, I love visiting New York. I'm the same way. (laughs) I didn't like I didn't like living there. Yeah. Um, Because of being a country boy. Um, New York, and this is, uh, and, 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 and I, I'm like everyone else. I love New York. New York's one of the best cities in the I world. I love it. To visit. Um, yeah. Yes. I, I know some people love wine. I think it's great. I don't drink wine, but I right. understand <laughs> it's great. New York isn't my cup of wine, so to speak. Yeah. It's the mental and physical space was tough for me. The getting on the subway against people, banging against people, walking in the rain, Sweating before you get there. It's a lot of work to get anywhere you want to be. It's a lot of work just to get around. (laughs) And then living in a small uh, apartment, you know. um, And when we get to the L.A. part of my life, it's that New York, I always tell people, is up. 
climbers. And LA is out. Drift, <laughs> you yeah, know. drifters or, or you know, you know um, right. moziers, you know. Yeah, you know, so it's easier to c- connect with people because it's just, it's horizontal where New York is vertical. Like, how do I know who's up on the 21st floor? But I can see who is over there on the beach. You know, it's it's a different thing. So I moved back because I just was like, it's just expensive. I don't want to have roommates. I'm not a roommate person. And I wasn't making any money on the jazz thing. It was a very fun hang, you know, like staying up at five o'clock and on the camaraderie. Um, But it just just wasn't working for me. Um, So I came back to Virginia. And my grandmother was getting older at that time. She she uh, eventually died from complications of diabetes. So she was getting in, in more and more poor health. But my friend that I had ended up touring Europe with had fell in love with a guy from Tortola, which is the British Virgin Islands. Yeah. So she told me the, the, the university there was looking for artists in residence. And it's part of the UE system, which is called the University of West Indies uh, University System. So I moved down there for about two years and I was, to me, I was living the life. I was living on an island. I was an artist in residence. So I was making music, composing for the choir, composing for the band and everything. The internet was starting to come, you know, at that point, the internet is growing and growing and growing and growing. So I started, you know, being able to see on the internet, all these things that were happening. And what I thought was going to be beautiful, like most things in life ended up becoming, which was tough for me it was beautiful being on this island puerto rico's there and everything ended up being what i hated i was on this island i felt so disconnected yeah and after two years i started going you know what am i doing you know not that that wasn't a beautiful experience i don't want anyone from there thinking i didn't enjoy my time there well no and and, and that is not even the point it's that sometimes you outgrow the place you are even if it's only for a minute absolutely yeah. And that was the journey that got me here, you know, so that taught me a lot of stuff. And I was like, you know what, I, I felt like, you know, okay, like we talked about the 20s are the years to kind of be finding who you are, you know. And then at the end of that, I said, you know, this this, this isn't what I want to do. I'm, I, I don't want to be an artist in residence at a university. I don't care if it was, you know, Berkeley. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to just be a, a teacher, you know, yeah, God bless more. the ones that do. We yeah. need them. Yeah, we need them. And, and they do an amazing job. That just wasn't for me. So I came back to Virginia and kind of reconnected. And was in bands, doing the jazz gigging. And I really was going through, you know, what am I, what am I doing? I was approaching 30. You know, what am I doing? And, um, you know, went to Miami to do a cruise ship. Went to New York to try to do the jazz thing. I was like, man, you're like, I'm, I'm starting to hit 30. What am I doing? And I love that you bring that up though in in relationship to age only because you know people will always talk about the midlife crisis but I think there is yes. actually a, a quarter life crisis is actually in my opinion kind of not even more valid but just an additionally valid stage of life when you're sure. approaching that 30 year old 30 years old I think we all think in the arts again from that 0 to 100 we see all the pop stars or the whomever we compare mm-hmm. ourselves to and innately right. there's some clock that we decide is expiring long before it's ever expiring, but it takes some of that pressure that guides right, us into these right. choices, which sure. is just interesting because. And, and, right. And I'll even take one step further is that I think each decade of your life has a crisis. I think from 20 to 30, there's some sort of thing from 30 to 40. There's a thing. 
Definitely. Not only in your career, in your personal life. So just because of biology, as a woman from 30 to 40, you start thinking about motherhood. Like, hey, I'm starting to get 40. Yeah. As men, when from, from 40 to 50, you start thinking, whoa, I'm about to be 50. What is my net worth? You know, we all, right. women That's think what I that mean. too. We have these things that we think have to define us. I right. think they are good guidelines. I mean, I think it's, it's sure. important to look to your next decade and think, what am I going to achieve or do? Purpose mm-hmm. is good. But right. it's interesting how so, um, especially in the arts, how ideas and things can be dictated by waking up, looking around, going, like you are in this moment. Like, do I right. want to be a teacher or an artist in residence when I'm pushing 30 and, you know, this isn't what I thought and Absolutely. I, I have more to do, you know? Yeah, and, and, and that's going back to what we started our conversation with of uh, the insecurity of, like, help. I was like, this isn't what I want to be doing. Like, am I doing everything I should be doing? I could be doing more. And that's in no way demeaning any experience I had, but it's just always, I want more. I want it more. <laughs> so when totally. I came back to Virginia... I was like, okay, I want more, but I don't know what it is. I knew what it was, but it's another thing that I tell people is it's that I didn't have a plan. I honestly didn't have a plan. So I remember saying at one point when I moved back to Virginia, um, I was one of those men, because <laughs> I, I won't say boy, I was a man that I had to move back into my grandmother's house. I came back from New York. I was like, spent all my savings. I moved back in. But that is it, being a man, because I'll tell you what, that's being an adult is what that is. I hear you. I hear you. I was like, I don't have it. Because you have I, to be grown enough to say, I'm not putting on airs. I'm yeah. going to do the thing that gets me to where I need to figure out that I'm going. And if yes. it means swallowing my pride and sleeping in grandma's house or mom's right. house or dad's house or auntie's house or whoever's house so that I can save my money to get to the place yes. that I know I'm going. That's I a, knew I was destined for that's it. Being, that's the first sign of being grown. Well, I appreciate that. And, and what's also about it is, and you'll get what I'm saying with it is, I loved my grandmother. And I still love her, God rest her soul. I hated having to move back in with her. Totally. I hated being 28, 29 going, I'm living with grandma. But that's a good thing. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) So I said, you know, what am I going to do? And so when she, um, and I kept, at at a certain point, I made it up in my mind. You know what? I'm going to Hollywood. I've done New York. Wasn't for me. I've done done Miami cruise ship. Wasn't for me, right? (laughs) I've gigged here in, in, in Richmond and humbly I was at, at that age, I was one of the, and you'll get what I'm saying. I was one of the upper echelon cats yeah, in you town. You were the big fish in a smaller pond. Right. So I was like, I've kind of done what I'm going to do here. You know, um, there was definitely musicians there that were more skilled than me. You know, there's always somebody in your town that can play or sing their asses off. But I was like, for me, I was already kind of at my ceiling where I was from. Um, and again, that's no way uh, uh, demeaning my hometown because that's where all my learning was. Um, so I kept saying, I'm going to move to Hollywood, but I didn't have a plan. And, you know, like most people, especially us creative people, what we're extremely good at is procrastinating. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept saying, I'm going to go. I'm going to move. And six months turned into a year. A year turned into 18 months. So what I did was I came out to L.A., and I had made some friends on the way because when I was living, living in New York, one of the things I did do is I was lucky enough to be a music director for a touring theater production. And I played piano touring. So we came to um, 
the West Coast to do some some tour, touring. It was a theater out in Palos Verdes, uh, to be exact. And I ended up becoming friends with one of the patrons, and we stayed in touch. And I flew out, and I had a little bit of money. I think I had 15000 And I said, you know what? I'm going to go and look at apartments. And I didn't really know much about L.A. I didn't know which was a good part, which was a bad right. part. And I <laughs> and, say this with love. And how spread out it is. It's hard to know. Right, right. Where you and I be. say this with love. <laughs> I thought all of LA was boys in the hood. So I was terrified. <laughs> no, for most people, for most people in the late 90s, I mean early late 80s and early 90s, our our exposure through media of LA was some very gangster stuff. It was That's boys in the hood. True. So that's so that true. Was, I've never thought about that time period that way. But NWA so much, was getting big. They were shining Mr. a big LA, light on the inner cities. And everything and gangster rap. Gangster rap. So and, yeah. I was terrified. Um, it's like I joke with people now. I go, when you watch the NBA basketball games and they show the Santa Monica Pier, you do know that's like 5% of L.A. The rest <laughs> yeah. of L.A. is the Valley and, and, and Hollywood. I always that laugh when the, people think that the that the Walk of Fame is right next door to the ocean, which is right next like, door no, to no, Disneyland. No, 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 that's the way the NBA basketball right, yeah. games make it look. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's only one little sliver of L.A. No, the rest baby, of it buckle up for like four that. hours of traffic and then you'll get to your next stop. Until you get there. It's only 10 miles away and it's four <laughs> hours of traffic. And so my experience, my exposure to L.A. really was that one play in Palos Verdes and movies on TV about L.A. And it was all about the gangster stuff. So I was terrified when I first came out. So I didn't know which was a good part. So then I made another trip and I just kept and I was on my first trip. I was terrified. And I remember looking back. And of course, like if you went to your old high school, it looks small to you now. But when you were little, it was huge. Absolutely. So when I first came to L.A., it looked just. In different than New York, it was sensory overload, but in a different way because it was so, so spread out. Spread out, yeah. Uh, and um, I came back, and my first apartment was on Poinsettia Place near what they call Rock and Ralphs. You know, right there in the guitar store. Oh yeah, you were in that the my thick of it. I, and I thought it was so funny. I thought I had made it because I lived in Hollywood. Yeah. When everyone knows. It was West well, Hollywood. not West Hollywood, but <laughs> Hollywood is not really where. Yeah. It's, like, it's not like you've made it if you live. Hollywood can be a little dingy. So, but I just was like, I got a Hollywood, you know, address. And I put a down payment or a deposit, whatever you call it, on a department there. And I finally did it. And I was terrified. And I went back to, and, and I put a hold on it for four months later. So I actually I'm moved to LA. amazed they let you do that. I know, I know. <laughs> and uh, because the apartment itself wasn't, I remember, wasn't available to four months oh, later. okay. So they were like, so wait, put, you're willing to wait, right. we can wait, this works. Right. So I remember it was either I was turning 30 or turning 31. I My birthday's October 7th. I came out the November of that year. So it was kind of like this coming of age for me. And this is when cell phones, I'm dating myself, this is when cell phones became more commonplace. Yeah. But they were still bulky. Yeah. There were the Nokia, <laughs> big bulky phones. I, I, iPhones were still on the drawing boards, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but it was still the bulky phone. And I remember moving out here with my old GMC Jimmy and a U-Haul attached to it. I drove by myself. Wow. I drove across the country for three and a half days. There was no such thing as a Garmin or a Maps on your phone or Waze. Oh, right. I had to do an 
I had to go to AAA and have them design me a map to travel. Oh my God. And I remember driving for three and a half days without the radio on, literally just, you know, uh, I just talked to God the whole time I was driving. I just kept saying, you know, like I just kept just having these universal metaphysical talks going. I remember just enjoying, I remember driving through Tennessee with the most torrential downpours. My truck overheated when I got to Oklahoma, <laughs> like like in the movies, smoke was coming up every 50 miles. I had to pull over to Meanwhile, put water like, in it. Is this a sign? I, I, I really was. No, Candace, I really was like, oh my God, like this can't be happening. <laughs> I might've had out of the 15,000 I had saved, I might've had like 11 left or, you know, whatever it yeah. was. What I tell you, I'm not joking. Like a movie, when I pulled into the garage at the apartment on Poinsettia Place, the truck died. Oh my gosh! Thank God it's you made it. Like, it <laughs> yeah, I made and literally it you died. Made as I pulled it. in. Now your future begins. Figure and out how you're gonna do it. <laughs> you're right. So three thousand dollars, thirty five hundred dollars went straight to uh, fixing the transmission oh. on the car. So then I was down to you know eight thousand yeah. dollars. And then, oh, wow, I live in L.A. now in, in, uh, in uh, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia. The, the most I ever paid for rent was 600 bucks a month. And it was huge. Yeah. My first rent was 1800 bucks, a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> that hurts. That hurts so with, much. Within <laughs> six months. So if you round that up to $2,000 oh, in six months, that's $12,000. I, I so know. literally... <laughs> I um, again, this like was like that the nice before. big savings you had is, was gone. Was gone in a day. I literally or thought it was going to last me forever. I was like, I was like the Dave Chappelle thing. I'm rich. I thought <laughs> I was going to move out to L.A. and I was like, oh, I'm great. I got ten thousand dollars. But fine. again, much like moving home with grandma, when you need to get out and hustle, absolutely, you got to get out and I hustle. Had to make it work. Yeah. Uh, funny story. Uh, who lived in my building? And him and I only in passing spoke once or twice. And I think I went to his apartment once or twice with another person um, that is a, a, a was a famous rapper in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, his, his original name in the 80s and 90s was Father MC. And I remember going, I live in the same building of Father MC? I made it. <laughs> and the person who lived in my building Either he was friends with someone in my building or he lived there. And I think he did live there uh, because I went to the apartment, unless it was his girlfriend at the time, was Kevin Hart. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. Exactly right. And this was before he was Kevin Hart. And you were like, who is this funny little man? (laughs) I just kept saying, like, who is this guy? He seems cool. And I thought I had seen him on TV back in Virginia at, like, Live at the Comedy Club or something like that where they would show the comedian. And his face looked familiar. And... Um, like I said, money That's such was an running LA out. story though. You know it's what I mean? Like story. it's such an LA. And I was so, and I was <laughs> so terrified. Like I didn't know, like I would say, you know, can you tell me how to get on the interstate to Kahuanga? And they were like, <laughs> whoa, you're not from here. It's freeway and it's Kahuanga. And I was like, oh. You're like, to Tajunga, Kahuanga. I, I, I was like that. Tajunga. Where's Tajunga? And you know, and I, I simple Vita. Can you show me how to get the simple Vita? I really didn't uh, know that anything. never doesn't not. Make I was me afraid laugh. to wear 
red because I, I saw on TV. <laughs> I, I looked straight ahead and I remember, and this was the days of the Thomas guy. I don't know if you remember those. That was, I was little, but yeah. <laughs> okay. The Thomas guy was before maps. It was the book that everyone got when you moved to LA that had the map of LA. And I remember coming up with anagrams to remember the streets because I was afraid to ask people. I would always say, in Hollywood, the sun always sets in Santa Monica, not on Wilshire. And that's how I remember the order of the streets oh, in Hollywood. That's great. And for the valley, I would remember Vrumbav. And it was <laughs> Violin, Riverside, Burbank, Oxnard, Victory. And that's how I remember that way. Because I always that's wanted smart. to remember... And each day I would just go out a little bit further each day and kind of do it a little adventure. And I remember my first time going into downtown. When I went into downtown in the early <laughs> 2000s there in LA was not where you wanted to go. I thought I was in the movie, The Purge, you know, back then. <laughs> now downtown is really nice. But yeah. back then it was terrifying. <laughs> they had not yet, you know, put all the money into gentrifying exactly. and putting twinkle right. lights the, and all that. And every the Staples <laughs> just, Center. Just meth and, needles and, and heroin. so I was... <laughs> getting terrified because my money was running out and because of my pride at that point i was like i can't go back home because i don't want to be the guy i wanted to prove certain people in my family wrong that i could quote unquote make it and i didn't want to be well he went to new york and came home he went to miami and came home and everyone not everyone but you know all of us in our lives we didn't we didn't have the term haters back then but we we've always had the term doubters i've always had people thinking you weren't good enough to, to make it in L.A. And I didn't want to prove them right. And I was scared that they were right. And I really, I remember having, and I'm not ashamed to say it, in my early 30s here in L.A., having very tearful nights and depressing nights and long walks by myself on sunset. Well, going, you find out what you're made of. You, you find your metal. And then one night, I'm telling you, everything like, you know, ends up being what's supposed to happen. The rapper whose name was Father MC invited me to a session because I would hang out with him every now and then, you know, because it was, you know, um, you know, tip- typical if, if you're in a room, if you're in a building full of, full of females, a lot, you will, you'll naturally gravitate towards becoming friends with the females. At the time, there wasn't a lot of African-Americans in the building. So we kind of all kind of just naturally gravitated towards each other. And I, and I, and I just was finding the common thread initially. Right. You know, and I, and I remember just being like in awe, like this guy was a big time rapper in the eighties and nineties had hit records. I remember listening to him and now I'm just kicking it with, I'm like, this is, this is Hollywood, you know? So he invited me to a studio session. And at that studio session, even though I'm mixed, I look more white than I do black. I was just going to ask um, you that based on the on the comment you just made. Has being mm-hmm. mixed, because my listeners can't see you, and I sure. know you, but um, sure. was that at that time, was that ever an issue in any capacity one way or the other? Like being no. too white looking or not black enough looking or, sure. if, you know. And, and that's a great question. And we'll probably circle back around that because... Um, I, it's never been a negative for me at all. It's never been a negative because, right. Because it's, and, and, and to be candid, it's, you know, how, when people say, oh, how come when you get around, you know, black people, certain people quote unquote act black, whatever that means. And then when they get around some people, they go, why do you act white? Whatever that means. Right. I've always just been Kevin. 
you know, it's, I, you know, it's just, um, I grew up in a black neighborhood. Um, everyone always knew I was Miss Washington's grandson. You know, they knew my sister who's half black and half Japanese. Yeah. So they kind of knew yeah. I came up in an era that there wasn't a lot of, I mean, I was born in 71. The civil rights movement was what, 64, 65 when all that's passed. Yeah. I grew up not even a decade past, like some serious. Right. Well, and that's why I'm, I'm like, America. you're coming to a, a young adult fruition. Right. Granted, it's that, you know, however many years later, but that's something that obviously right. thematically we have seen throughout our history over and over. So sure. I was curious. I never, what, what's in the first time to get off track a little bit, I, the first time I ever became aware of my color and race, I might've been 16. Because no one in my neighborhood ever treated me as the white kid. Right. <laughs> you know, which I was is always amazing. I mean, what a beautiful yeah, was, experience. Right. They, and, and they, and nobody ever picked on me because all my cousins are full, full blown African American. So they, no one ever teased me, but it wasn't like, you know, like for, to even expound it into my adult career. When I worked with Chris Brown, I'm not trying to act like I'm some hip hopper and I'm some gene sagging and I'm hardcore. So there's no, I don't want to use, for lack of a better word, there's no threat or look, look he's trying to act this way. Yeah. I'm just Kevin. I'm your, I'm working with music well, with you. It's coming from a place of authenticity opposed authenticity. to coming from a place sure. of posing in any direction. Like of sure. being like, I'm going to wear and this outfit. I, sure. And I say this actually with love. I've had people tell me, they go, Kevin, when I talk to you on the phone, I think you're some six foot two tall black dude. And then when I see you, I'm like, have I just been catfished? <laughs> you know? And, you know, and this, you have all this bass in your voice. Not that, you know, white people or Hispanics or, you know, Asians don't have bass, but they just go, I just, you know, you sound like a quote unquote black person, whatever yeah, that sounds We all like. have different. We have know, our things, right? Our things. So, um, every every it, uh, category can have their no, stereotypes sure. of whatever we sure. come to the table and, with. And, and to be candid, there's been times in a career when someone might call me for a hip hop job. Um, it might not be that they question my authenticity because of my skin complexion. They're more questioning me because they're going, well, he doesn't look like a hip hopper, right. whatever that may be. Right. Eminem's a hip hopper and he's not black. Right. But he, he's he's a, a legend. He's got whatever amazing, street right. cred vibe. Right. So yeah. they look at me and they go, he's more like my father and less like a <laughs> hip hopper. Well, but that's but some then, of your jazz influence, right? Like, <laughs> sure, right. But at the end of the day, your music and your work speaks speaks for you, Always. you know. But there's, but um, not because of race, there's certain gigs I may not do because I feel like I owe it to my client to say, you know what? I'm not an old town Nashville country expert, but I have someone on my team that can do it for you, you know, and your clients end up respecting you for that. Um, So, but I've never caught, you know, um, any negativity from that. I have uh, experience, you know, because I always tell people, I'm always going to tell you the truth. You may not always like what I have to say, but I'll tell you the truth from my experience. Um, I have experienced uh, in in our black community, that um, we have inherent prejudices, even, even in our own community, of light skin and dark skin. And sometimes I might get treated, um, which has happened to me. Um, if I'm in a, uh, around a bunch of more brown skin people, the client will come and talk to me like they figure I'm in charge, even mm-hmm. when I wasn't. So that that has been a real thing. Yeah. Um, but and and I would immediately go, oh, I'm not in charge. This person's right person right. right here is in charge but that's just a uh a, a thing that's you know a whole nother conversation of how 
we in America view things, but um, I've never had any negative experience from being mixed at all. Uh, I, I don't, I'm digging in my memory banks. I've never had one bad experience. I only became aware of my mixedness. I honestly, when I was at 16 yeah. is when someone made a very mean comment that made me go, wait a minute, what? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, Oh, cause I remember we were at a school dance and from another school, uh, one of the young girls said, look at that white boy trying to act black. And that was the first time ever in my life up until 16 years old that I ever feel like, and then I became a little self-conscious. Like I was just going to ask, what was the thinking, aftermath of that for you? Did you I go was home a little and go like, I, be, I became grandmother. a little, yeah, I became a little quiet until my junior, senior year of high school. Cause I was, I became very um, insecure about, are people thinking I'm acting black? Like whatever that is, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, because all of my friends, because, you know, just the, the nature of the neighborhood I grew up in, all my playmates and young friends growing up were all black. Yeah. Um, but I grew up in a small town. I had white friends, Asian friends, you know, um, but my neighborhood friends were all black. And when we got older to go hang out and kick it and get into trouble, my my friends that I would kick it with were all black kids from my neighborhood. Uh, and that was the only time I remember just going, wait a minute. Is that how people are seeing me? Like a white guy, quote unquote, acting black. But that was the only time in life. Luckily, in cities like New York, L.A., Miami, it's so multicultural. Right. It's no one ever thinks anything. I I mean, there's a hundred of every type of person that you can concoct in your mind. Times a (laughs) hundred. Times a hundred, yeah. And then that's diluted again. Like my son, his mother is Irish and Mexican. Yeah. And then you have me being African-American and Caucasian with probably a little bit of Spanish in there. It's like, he just looks like a I think the world's kid. moving to that direction in general, just with the capabilities that we have to reach out to each other now. Like my sure. husband, my son is is Filipino, Irish, Mexican, Hungarian, Cherokee, Indian. Whoa, the Hungarian. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's a roll of the yeah. dice. I mean, his genetic roulette, who knows, you know? Absolutely. But, and I think and we're you all You never moving. know what part is going to show up, yeah. you know? And I think we're all moving in that direction, you know, that I hope skin colors and tones and races just become a conversation of the past sure. in my lifetime. Um, sure. Because I do see more and more people just, again, with social media, with the internet, with, with travel capabilities, with airplanes, right. you know, people are going to places that they didn't a hundred years ago or even 50 years ago. And that cross pollination is making beautiful babies all over the place. Uh-huh, all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Absolutely. let's jump ahead just for a second because I, I want to uh-huh. get to um, a pivotal part in your life. What would you say mm-hmm. at this point, what was kind of the first big Hollywood break for you? Was it this experience? Yeah. yeah. Yes, it was the, believe it or not, it was a, not in a negative way, a color racial moment, meaning that studio session that uh, Father MC had invited me to, I think Rodney Jerkins bought the studio and ne- now he's not there, but it was called Atlantic Recording Studios. It was on Western. And I went there and that was my first big Hollywood recording session. And literally when I walked in, it was the equivalent to a first time a young man might walk into a strip club. It was like, <laughs> I was like, dear. And I was like, what is, I mean, Nothing crazy was going on, but just my whole, like, this is a recording studio. Like, we didn't have big SSL 9000 consoles in Virginia. They were, right. like, real 
You're and, seeing and like have, the things that people dream me, about seeing. 1073s. I was like, like, and it was just walls full of equipment, like $14,000 telefunking 251 mics and stuff. <laughs> like I had only seen pictures of this stuff. And I was like, this is like every day. Like the console was a huge SSL, two engineers sitting there, people all around. It's handlers. inspiring. When you walk into a place like that, it's all inspiring. You're like, oh, this like, is. This is what dreams and there were are made some, of. Yeah, and there were some scary people there. There were like the bodyguards that were there. <laughs> so I was like terrified. Like, again, I had never been. Right, you're like, oh, now I am situation. in the thick of the bloods and right. the crips in this right. gorgeous like, yeah, studio. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, hey, I just wanted to come hear some music. I was invited. I'm, I, you know, I'm, 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 you know, literally I was deer in the headlights. And I sat down and to this day, him and I are really good friends. And he ended up starting a company called Signature Tracks. That's a very successful um, reality show music uh, company. His name is uh, Russell Howard. He's a white guy from Philadelphia. And him and I, because of our skin complexion, naturally kind of gravitated. He, yeah. Right. So he thought I was white, but we just kind of like vibe. Yeah. I was talking to a bunch of people there, but him and I talked and we kind of liked each other's vibe and we stayed in touch. Um, back then it was probably all emails because no one really had we had cell phones, but it wasn't like, you know, you know, it wasn't like it is now. Yeah. But it just hit you up and everything, DM you and all that stuff. So he was a writer when Babyface still owned the Edmonds building that's on Cohanga near uh, uh, Hotel Cafe. The now I that I'm recorded Warner's. in that building. I was signed to a girl group. Me? Of in Babyface's building. It was Rude Boy Records, I think. At the there was oh, a record. Do you know? I, what if we crossed each other in the halls back then and didn't even know it? Because Dave Thomas and Take you. Six was in there, and um, yeah, I rem- were you there? I was there. I I never had an office there. Russell had a room there, but I would go up a lot because Babyface and Tracy were still married at the time, right? And Tracy was doing a lot of TV shows, a lot of College Hill, and she had some other TV shows. Yeah. And her brother Mike McCorn was producing a lot of the shows, so. Russell was one of the writers up there. And that's how I met Tyrese Gibson and did some writing for some of Tyrese Gibson's uh, uh, motion comics and things like that. And was working with him for a while. But I started going up, working with Russell, doing some things. And that's how I met Tyra Razavi, who's gone on to be a successful TV producer, and Mike McCorn, Tracy's brother. That was my first big break. And, and then really getting music into TV shows. And then I started seeing my royalties and I was like, what? This is from that? <laughs> Here all. And, yes, please. Yeah. And some more. <laughs> yes, please. I'll have another. Yeah. And so Seconds. him and I developed a friendship all through the years. And I ended up doing a lot of shows for them. Um, you know, in typical reality shows, there's seldomly one composer that does it all. It might be a team of eight people. Right. They'll take 20 tracks from me, 20 tracks from you, 20 tracks from this person. And then I kind of all goes into the pile, the playlist, and it gets in the show. And I was really enjoying that. I remember just being so excited watching the TV show, seeing my music. And so that, I was doing a lot of that for them and the stuff that they were doing. Um, and then that was the first pivotal break. And then almost just like when I was in college with the jazz piano, the light bulb went out. I went for about a year of desolation, like thinking, do I have to move back to Virginia? Like nothing happening to an explosion. It went, the baby face thing, also the Edmonds thing happened through Russell. And then things just started happening. It was, 
I ended up being an in-house composer at a trailer house from that and was doing custom scores for tr- almost like tons of trailers, the data earth stood still, the happening with Marky Wahlberg. It was like tons of trailers. Now, let me just ask then, you one question. Forgive me for interrupting mm-hmm. you, but everything sure, no. you're talking about is now in a new era of technology. Had you absolutely taught yourself that? Did you just kind of shadow? Was, yes. Yes, I was um, what I tell students now, but we didn't have that back then. Um, back in my jazz piano days, inevitably, you being a singer, you might say, hey, Kevin, let's, I want to sing April in Paris, and the book key is A flat, but you want to do it in uh, G. Yeah. And I'm you know, kind of struggling through it, or I may not even know the song. I would tell every singer, I guarantee you next time you see me, I'll know that song in every key. And that I took that to Hollywood going, they would say something and I would kind of nod my head along. Like I kind of knew what they were talking about, hoping my eyes didn't show I was terrified. <laughs> and somehow I would try to find out what they were talking about. Yeah. Um, when I was in-house composing for the, the, uh, the trailer house, um, Jeff Calnan was the, who's gone on to start project XAV legendary. He's like a, industry Hollywood trailer creative legend. Um, he gave me my first shot and um, either he knew I didn't know what I was doing or he knew he could get me for, or he knew he could get me for cheap. <laughs> and I learned like by, honestly, I learned by covering my mistakes. I would try to eavesdrop and hear what people were talking about and try to make sense of it. The internet was coming along. Google wasn't what it is now where you could type in anything and there's a free video of right. Chris Lord Algie or Hans Zimmer <laughs> or Junkie XL explaining it. Back then, you had to really go, how do I find out what this means? Like, what are they talking about? Frame rates? How, what, 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 do, what do they mean camera frame rates? Oh my God. But that brings up a huge point and I think that's something that is so timeless. It's that when you have the work ethic and the passion sure, and you are determined not to fail, whatever, absolutely, regardless of the outcome. And, and when I say determined not to fail, it means like right. maybe you get to point A instead of point Z. But the absolutely. point is that you're not going to fall flat on your face because you're going to figure it the fuck <laughs> Yes. The I, F I out. had to because I was like, there's nowhere else to go. I can't, I can't leave Hollywood. This is the pinnacle. Yeah. You know, with all due respect to London and New York and Miami. But you're like, this is um, where I came to make it. Or to this is, yeah, this has TV, film, music, commercials, like records, everything is here. Like, where else am I going to go? Like, I have to, and I, and I love the city, yeah. beach, the weather, mountains, snow, if I want to see snow, you know, everything was here, desert right there. So I was like, I love the city. I got to make this work. And the stakes were so high because I was working with famous people now. So I yeah. couldn't mess up. Um, so I would, you know, guess my way through it and I made some mistakes and, but what I always tell young people now, I don't even want to say young people, people who are starting out or building an entertainment industry. When someone's trying to teach you something, don't try to make it fit your understanding and you just learn the right way to do it. So if, when someone would correct me and not try to embarrass me and say, Hey, Kevin, when they say frame race, this is what they're talking about. I would listen Back then, there wasn't phones with notes and voice memos. I would write down everything they said, you know, and I didn't care if they saw me writing it down, which I think made them want to teach me more because they saw, oh, he's really he's soaking wanting it in. to learn. The he's enthusiasm soaking it in. is there, yeah. And, I, and 
people will give you grace sometimes, depending on what it is, on the first mistake. Even now in my career, as I'm mentoring people, I, I'll forgive the first mistake. But if I have to keep telling you the same thing. Well, that just shows you weren't listening. And you if weren't you're not writing it, it down, yeah. you're not voice recording me, then like, what's your excuse now? You can video me showing you how to do it. <laughs> you have you every know. possible way to capture my information. And to capture what yeah. I'm saying. You, you can write it down, video and voice record it, you know, like, and slow it down and slow more and watch everything that we're doing. So like from that, and then it was like three things that happened. Honestly, Ken, it's almost like serendipitously just at the same time. Ricky Minor gave me my first gig as an MD for Catherine McPhee. And Ricky Minor to me back in Virginia, I knew who he was. Um, yeah, and he was like like an untouchable person. Like yeah. he was like, I, and he somehow I don't remember his assistant at the time might have been Rob Leifer. And sometimes I, I, somewhere I just kept bothering, not in an annoying way, but just kept every three months I'd reach out to Rob on MySpace. That's dating me on MySpace, saying, "Hey, just just keep me in mind for an audition. I just want to audition." Back then, when auditions was yeah. almost two times a week, there was some sort of audition going on. And he finally gave me a chance for Catherine McPhee. And I had never music directed a Hollywood level thing. And I was terrified. I was (laughs) terrified again. And those three things happening, literally, I'm not lying, Candace, that all happened within one year of each other. All three of those, the Edmonds, the the trailers and the TV film side. And Ricky calling me for that first gig. It was like this, this, the, the sky had opened up and huh? and then from that gigs just kept coming, just kept you know, through. yeah. And Rick, I'm sure Ricky knew that I didn't know what I was doing, but, <laughs> or he, he knew never, that you could know what you were doing. Like or, 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 you'll or, figure or, or out. I was yeah. a student, right. You know, I had something that I would learn and I, Mike McKnight, the legendary playback guy was on that gig. So I was learning from the best on that. So, and Chris Johnson was a drummer on that gig. He was a, he was a young phenom at that point. Yeah. He was just becoming that young phenom. So, um, Jocko Caraco, who's the oh. guitarist, you know, Jocko, yeah. he was a young gun on that gig. Bryant Siono on bass was on that gig. Um, Kenya Hathaway was on that gig. Wow. Um, uh, yeah. So we had... And it's funny, we we were all young guns at that point, you know, and to look where everyone's going with their career, you know, yeah. Chris Johnson is like the the first call pop drummer, you know, one of them, you know. Um, so we were on that band together and, you know, Chris had worked with Ricky before and, you know, I really didn't know, I didn't know how to get people breaks. I didn't know how to work with the Pro Tools <laughs> to fix them. Like, I didn't know You're like, you need to eat? So, what? <laughs> right, like. We can't run. I have to water you like a plant. (laughs) Water? Who needs water? I like, and Mike McKnight was so gracious. He like kind of was like not embarrassing me. He was like, hey, Kevin, you know, we need to, you know, if you're going to play that keyboard part, we need to take it out of Pro Tools. If Chris is going to play the snare live, let's take the snare out of Pro Tools. No one ever tried to embarrass me, you know, and that's why I've taken that now that I'm approaching 50 when I mentor people is that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to embarrass you. The only person that can embarrass you is you because I'm not going to do it. And the only way you're going to embarrass yourself if you don't take the guidance I'm giving you or anyone is giving you, um, and, and acting like, you know, everything. Um, well, it's such an important point because when you, when you're in the presence of somebody like yourself now at this exact stage in your career, 
any any advice you're willing to give is an opportunity for that next person. Absolutely. It's not and just what I, meant to be put out there with some flippant, like, uh, oh, pass gonna, it off your I shoulder. I want to show you what to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, and and it, and it really kind of goes back to back to Hopewell, Virginia, with my grandmother. I don't want to teach them to do it my way. I want them to teach them to do it a smart, logical, teamwork way, very organized way, and not what to think, but how to think. Right. When an artist hits you with a, you know, uh, something that's kind of like out of left field, how do you process it? The only way, if, if you're in pop music and what we do is music direction and stuff for TV, there's always going to be a curveball always right the more organized you are the more you can deal with the curveballs but if you're not organized and you don't know what you're talking about and you know what you're doing you haven't delegated this person is does this um if you have five people in the bgv section you delegate a bgv leader you're not trying to give direction to five people you give it to one person and they right. filter it on so forth and yeah, so work on smarter not harder you know. but efficiently Efficient, and especially now with technology, with time code, video walls, pyro, lights, uh, all these things going on. Um, the choreo people need this, clicks and slates, pro tools this, this person needs this. If you don't understand, you don't have to understand every position. You have to understand the need for every position. You know, and uh, you can't be in, you, you may and, or may not respect be. the need of every position. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't, you can't give the video wall person time code prints at the last minute because now they're frustrated because they're going, now I'm getting barked at because I'm not prepared. Right. I've been asking for this for two <laughs> weeks. So, you know, you have to understand it as a team. So um, now the technology is, and I had to learn the technology as I went. Because yeah. again, back when I was growing up, now it's almost the opposite. Schools are shifting more and more to the education of the technology education, where the theoretical, actual performance, academic part takes the back seat. Yeah. When I was growing up, it was the academics, right? And the technical thing was you learn on your own. Yeah. You isn't know, it, but so. isn't that an interesting shift just in time? How technology has changed an in industry from the inside out. I mean, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. That being said, because I do as when I when I whoever's hearing this when it goes live and airing, mm -hmm. I will have already bragged about all your credits and all the wonderful oh, people that you work <laughs> with and all the things that you do in television, film with artists like JLo. Mm -hmm. Um so they're coming into this information already knowing awesome. what a big deal you are. <laughs> so I, oh, what a big I, deal I think I am. <laughs> no, so I want to ask you a couple questions that I ask everybody sure. because I think we've sure. at least covered to a contemporary part of your life where it's like, here's what you're doing and we know how you right. got there. Um, sure. And that's why I think the journey is so important because not that the career part isn't important, but becoming who you are and getting to how you got to be who you are right. you know, is, is the thing that I think people walk away with going, oh, Oh, I can do that. Like I can 100%. grab my guts and say, I'm going to go make a go of it and not fail. Right. Um, right. What would you say with everything that you've accomplished, which is immense, what's something you would tell your younger self? Maybe, maybe a 13 year old version of yourself. You yes. Know? I, I saw that in your thing. The thing that I would tell my younger self is the same thing I would tell my older self is Whatever you do, don't waste time because you can get, I, I said this in another interview, you can get money back. You can get your husband, your wife back, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you can get your health back, 
One thing you can never get back is time. Oh, so I don't love, waste time. So true. <laughs> it's so can, true. Don't. Now, I do want to say that with a caveat. I've heard people say the best thing I can tell people is just, just to go do it. And I don't want to say that that advice is bad advice because that advice might be great for someone. But I also come from the South where we have a saying that says measure twice, cut once. If you see a cliff and there's a and you want to be a diver and you see an ocean, I wouldn't tell that person just do it because there <laughs> may be a ton of rocks under where you're jumping. Yeah. What I would say is do your research and make a calculated decision of I can jump, but maybe not just in that water. Or maybe I'll wait to high tide when the rocks aren't there. So I'll say to people is to there's a difference between having a dream and a vision. A dream is just all in fantasy. A vision has a plan. So in not wasting time, if you have a vision, have a plan. I still, I'll be 50 next October, Candace. I still have a quarterly plan for each year, a six-month plan, a year plan. I love it. Five-year plan, a 25-year plan. I still have those plans. That you doesn't mean they don't. make time count. You block it out Absolutely. and say, I'm going to do these in this t- amount of time. A- Absolutely. And the third thing I would say to that, and because it's not just one thing, because I do believe they all go together. In a Star Trek episode, Spock says to um, Captain Kirk, emotion clouds the intellect. And I tell people never make um, decisions based on emotion. Make sure you measure twice, cut once. Don't make a decision and try to fix it. And that can be in your personal life. Like you get mad at your girlfriend, I hate you. And you realize, oh, it was your fault. You you did say five o'clock, not three o'clock. So you made a decision based on emotion, not knowing that it was your fault. How about check your notes and say, oh, it was me that said five o'clock. And then you carry uh, accordingly. Is that when you, and, and those things are based in insecurity or fear. Every bad decision I've ever made in life, whenever I was a young musician in my 20s, walking in the room thinking I was the peacocking around, that's all based on insecurity and fear because you're acting that way out of fear. People not thinking you're good enough or whatever. Yeah, so you need to project you, the image you think. Thank you. Yeah. Right. So if you don't waste time, have a vision, not a dream, and make decisions just based on sound choices, 100% is still not going to go as planned. You it, know? Well, that's life. And that's God right, that's reminding life you, for you, like best laid plans. But at know? least you're <laughs> minimizing, you know, because if you don't have a plan, like, if I said go to Hollywood and go to Santa Monica, there's like 3,000 ways to get there. But which is the most efficient plan? The fastest plan you might think is the freeway, but not at four o'clock. Yeah. So taking the taking the, the side streets might be the better way to go. A little turn here, a little turn there, you know. Yeah. But that freeway is a little bit crowded right now. So me to try to be Mr. MD when I was 30, that, um, that freeway is a little crowded at that point. It was Ray Chu, Paul Merkovich, yeah. Ricky Minor. That, that freeway was a little crowded. <laughs> so now I'm in a good place on that freeway for that. You know what I mean? So totally. d- you have to make uh, your decisions. But if you, when you waste time, all that becomes in wasting time. I, n- I always say this. I, I, w- this is a little sidetrack, but it will kind of answer to your point. I tell people the easiest way to show people you don't respect them and you don't care about the gig is to be late. Nothing says to an artist that this is not important to you than being late. I haven't been late to one gig, one session. Do people tell your artists the same thing? Is what I want to know. <laughs> no. 
I wish they I, look. I've seen uh, Ricky <laughs> Monitor. I, 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 I won't see who the artist was, but I've seen Ricky tell an artist or two, "Hey, but you yeah. know, you like because it's funny to me." Because I our, agree our with our you, belief. by the way. I just, I just yes. somehow Not myself sure, included, yeah. being a really, 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 really small entertainer. I there are moments uh, no. where I'm like, oh god, that ten minutes. Sorry. No, it's it's but it's, my lash glue because... didn't work, and I couldn't get my no, face right, on. Right. And... <laughs> <laughs> and, and I say it's important because we love our musician community, and we'll both get a chuckle out of this. We're in a community where we'll be thirty minutes late to a gig but we'll fuss from hell to high water if we're paid late. You don't That's expect so the payment true. to be late. <laughs> so, <laughs> so true. But how do you have the ethical and moral and business high ground to be upset about something being late when you haven't done that? I've seen people not be late for their own gig, but late to everyone else's gig. I treat everyone's gig like it's mine because it is mine. Yeah. You know, um, if the gigs, if, if they say rehearsal starts at four o'clock, I'm there at 3.15. Yeah. Get my coffee, say hello to everyone, get a hug, share a laugh. I'm at my station ready to go at 3.45 if that be is 4 o'clock. I make sure everything's working, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So, um, but that's, I wish I did have one quick answer to your question. No, I love I it though. Like it's multifaceted and it's so, it's so well thought out because it's, it, it it's not a, it's not a singular, you know, quick drop of a pin answer. Not sure. It's, there's a lot. And one that. thing. And one thing Ricky Minor taught me, he said, you have to create what's called fear of loss. And he says, um, who actually, I'll always give credit. Ricky Minor has been probably one of my, uh, and many musicians, big influences on how he ran, runs himself as a brand, as a business, as a musician, and so forth. Uh, he said, you, um, there's always going to be someone younger than you and someone cheaper than you and someone that plays better than you. But what you have to do is create fear of loss. Meaning, Oh, I, I found a singer that might can sing higher notes than Candace, but she's late all the time. Candace is never late. Yeah. I might have found someone who's younger than Candace, but Candace can also sight read. You always have to create this fear of loss where there is no yeah, but about you. There's always only, I mean, people are not going to like you for whatever reason. You have yeah. blonde hair. Yeah. You can't stop that. No. You can't make everyone like you, but everyone can respect you. So... People are going to hate yeah, on you for whatever reason. Yeah, it's one to have somebody say, you're not the right person on this gig, but you're you're not getting docked from another gig that you would be right Absolutely, for, because you know? you're so on it. Right. You know, so I've always tried to take that with me of trying to create that fear of loss that not that you walk around like a peacock saying, you're not going to fire me. Right, you right. know, not, not in that sense, but you've created such an equity with whatever camp you're with working with. the value with you, bring, you bring, yeah. The value that you bring. Let me ask you this because it's a good transition. What would mm -hmm. you say is a career high and low for you and why? Yes, the... Uh, I, uh, I won't say the name, but it was the first gig I ever got fired from. Mm. I was devastated. I was devastated, 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 devastated. Um, because it was, let's face it, you've been, you've been here. It's a small town. And I say to people with love, think of all the beautiful things that you remember about high school. That's Hollywood. Think about all the bad things you remember about high school. That's Hollywood as well. Yeah. So it, it's a pretty gossipy town. It can be. I won't say it is. Um, and unfortunately, bad news travels faster than the good news. And I had gotten fired from a gig. And I was really distraught about it. And, it, and bluntly, the reason was because I had become, I didn't understand at that point that 
your artists are still your clients. They aren't your friends. So I remember being and even like, if they become your friends, they're still your clients. It's, they're still yeah. your boss. And I'll make it clear so no one will ever construe that it was inappropriate behavior. It was a male boss that I had. Yeah. And we had just become drinking buddies and we would hang out. And we had got into an argument one night, something as silly as maybe over the Lakers or something like yeah. that. It was an argument that you just think we're friends. And then I received an email from the manager the next day saying the artist didn't want to continue with me. Wow. And I was, I didn't understand. And that taught me not to not be friends with artists because it is a small community, but it did teach me that it was, there's a line. There's a respectful, uh, and I'm thank you for giving me that visual <laughs> I was, re- was- <laughs> no, because I was looking for that, and 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 you know like for people listening, um, I literally put my hand and like drew a line. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and and I think that was important. That I'm glad it happened to me early, like in my early 30s when it happened, um, because you know who who wants to be fired at 49 years old? Um, I remember that, and I just was like so distraught. I called up the artist, going. Hey man, I'm sorry. I thought we were just having another one of our arguments like we normally do when we drink and stuff like that. And um, they didn't see it the same way, you know. Yeah. Um, and and they were like, you know, um, because in our previous arguments, um, you know, we would curse and f you, man. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You, too. you know, you don't know no Martin Luther King. You know, like <laughs> the Lakers are great. No, the Clippers are better. F you, man. Yeah. And then and and then, and then that that to me was another one of our 50 million arguments that we would have. And it was nothing to them. It wasn't. And I, and I remember that day after that, um, a good friend of mine who, you know, and probably love as well, Gordon Campbell, Mm. um, called me up and said, Hey man, let me tell you about the time I got fired from earth, wind and fire. And he said, Kev, all of us are going to get fired at some point in life, whether it's something we did, we missed a note. They don't, they want to get another player that's cheaper. Um, he said, just face it. We all get fired. And, um, that was a really good lesson to just keep it professional, you know, um, just keep it professional. Even if the artist, um, starts becoming friendly, I always keep it friendly, but I just keep that very professional line. Um, I've known some people, MDs and band members that become really, really good friends with the artists. I'm not saying that you can never do that and not to do that. I'm just saying for me, that was a, a lesson for me to say, you know, the way I'm going to keep doing this for 20, 30, 40 years is that I do keep a very like, uh, you know, we're really good friends with Jennifer Lopez, but there's still that professional line. Yeah, you that, still have a service you know, to to give she's to still her the boss. and she's still the boss asking for, you she's know, what she boss. needs from you. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I'm not ashamed. Like some people may not want to tell that story of getting fired, but for me, it's if that happened to me to help someone else. Well, and that's why I asked that question, because especially with professionals in your position, I find that that's one of those things that gives a lot of educational insight to being in your life in this profession. Absolutely. And there's a lot of times when there's gray area and, and the highs will come out of that, out of that gray area. But a lot of times the lows come out of that gray area. Right. Sure. Sure. To have somebody with your expertise, you know, share something like that it you know there's somebody right. listening who's going to be like okay God, i'm going to i'm going to yeah. learn from his mistake <laughs> instead of Absolutely. going and, my own road yes and and, and an artist you know they'll the artist you work for they might win a grammy they might have a pool party at their house they might have a party everyone's there having a good time i'm not telling people to not do that cuz that's part of the fun that we get to have yeah. we get to let our hair down 
Uh, I'm just saying that to, for every person, it's different and every relationship that you have is different. And for me, it was always remember that that still is my boss, right. you know, that, you know, um, in, in that one situation, I don't think the Lakers was that important for me to lose a job and one too many F you mans, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. right? but it was done in a F you, the Lakers are great. Right. No, man, you're stupid. But that you you said the most like, important thing to them. It, it was different, you know, and, and maybe maybe there was another musician in the room and that heard it and they felt disrespected in front of the other musician. Like you have to really, when you're dealing with artists, you know, you really have to, and you, as you as an artist, you always want to know the, 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 the staff, the creative staff that you surround yourself with is that you're very friendly and approachable with them, but they still respect that Candace is the boss. Yeah. You know, well, and, and everybody's working toward the vision of that. So, and that's right. where that, you know, kind of hierarchy, the, you know, when you right. start to get really, really close, sometimes the vision of the clear lines of what should move right. forward get blended because it's like, and, and then those clear lines become, okay, one day as you're fussing over the, the Lakers, the next day you're showing up late and the next day you're not wearing the right gig clothes. So artists and teams may see of there's a, loosening of those like you said like that regimen of this is what's expected and again luckily that happened for me early so that um i could have that experience so that it would never happen again <laughs> you know totally. um and, and i can happily say that's never happened again well you know Kevin Teasley. I'm not surprised Aww. at all. You are just the end all be all. You're uh, amazing. Think, I uh, feel think. honored that I've been able to sit in a studio with you and, and CJ and some That's other right. folks. That's right. We've and, done a song together. Yep. I have a great memory. It was you, uh, CJ Emmons, and uh, please excuse me if I say his last name wrong. Dave Yadin or Yadin. Dave Yadin. Yeah. 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 And we were in there working on a song for CJ. And, and, and that's a great story of you know, such a small community. Yeah. Um, the experience I had with you and the guys <laughs> was a great experience. You know, we were creative together and we hadn't worked together actually since then. I know. And we're here now, but see, that's here, how, that's to your point. It's a small community. And we followed and, each other's careers. Right. There's been a mutual respect. And, you know, that's the thing that everyone remembers is that, you know, you have to treat everyone well, not just because they might give you a a gig one day, <laughs> it's the right thing to do to be a good human being. Yeah. You're not going to get along with everybody. That's the that's human nature. Some people's personalities don't don't mix, <laughs> but you can still have a respect for someone. You know, um, and luckily on that session, not only did our personalities, me, you, Dave, and CJ's personalities mix, is that um, we've maintained that mutual respect for each other, even though our careers have gone and bloomed in different directions. Yeah, yeah you know. Um, but that's the beautiful thing about social media. We get to follow each other I know. and, you know, and I yeah. just adore you and I could talk to you for hours upon hours upon hours. On, and so Thank I think you. we're going to have to schedule Thank another one in a handful of we months. Will. And we I want to dig into all the, we'll go from, we've gotten your life kind of covered. You're going to come back and then we're going to dive into yes. the next section of how you can tell everybody not to be a jackass when they're a professional. <laughs> Absolutely. Very important. It's been a pl- I'm glad that you're doing this and I, and I hope all your fans and followers are really uh, uh, appreciative of it because, again, when we were growing up, there wasn't this. There wasn't, you know, a Ricky Minor on, you know, on YouTube. There wasn't a YouTube. Right. You had to wait till you saw him on Arsenio Hall show, I guess. Yeah, and you, but, and you couldn't get to the insides of him and, right. and ask you, Or you had yeah. to go to Berkeley and spend tens of thousands of dollars. Right. to. So now for people, you know, to, to watch your show and, and to listen to your podcast it's very important that all the people that you're bringing on, I guarantee you, if I listen to every single one, 
there's a few common threads that's going through everything that we're saying. We all Absolutely. have different paths and a different take on it. But if people really listen, there's a common thread. And one of them that I'll say is that we both know it is truth. You know, is that if you be true to who you are and don't put on airs, don't worry about the people who don't like you. Just care about the people who do like you and respect you. Um, it's just that, again, I'll tell people, you may not always like what I have to say, but I owe it to you to be honest, <laughs> you know, of what I'm going to tell you. Preach, my friend. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I could not have there said it better go. myself. I adore you to the moon and beyond. I adore you. Back. I appreciate we, you. When COVID is over, we have to do a play date. Oh, my gosh. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> I may, I may make you guys drive out here and, and put you we in the driver's seat at our studio. and We'll, we'll, we'll take an RV out there. <laughs> yeah. We'll go hiking. Go. I'll put you on a horse and we'll make music. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Candice. <laughs> I look forward to the next time. We will make sure all of our listeners find you and know all the places. Absolutely. And and same here. You are immense and it's such a treasure. Thank and thank you for being you on too. my podcast. Thank you, my sister. Talk Until to you soon. Until soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Alright everybody, today's episode is brought to you by The Raven Cafe, located at 142 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. I love this place. I eat there all the time, and let me tell you why. The Raven Cafe features a full, all-organic espresso bar and a wide variety of craft beers and wines. Their innovative menu is created with a focus on organic ingredients, many of which come from local sources. So head on over there. Enjoy a relaxing and comfortable environment decorated with rotating art shows by local and regional visual artists. And on the weekends, a lineup of the best in up-and-coming local music. You don't want to miss out on the Raven Cafe. It's absolutely one of my favorite spots in town. So head on over to ravencafe.com and order online or stop by to catch a happy hour on their beautiful rooftop patio. Thank you for listening to The Creative Convergence, coming to you from Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Are you a professional in the arts and would like to share your story with us or a company that would like to advertise with us? Shoot us an email at contact at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Help support the arts by becoming a Raven Productions member. To get your perk card and be the first to know about all of our upcoming promotions, events, and online programming, your membership will directly support the arts programs in our schools. Sign up today at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Until next time, be safe and enjoy the journey.